This episode is brought to you by Left of Boom. We empower leaders to respond to crisis proactively and with confidence. When crisis strikes, organisations face a battle of survival under intense scrutiny. How they are judged depends on the performance of individuals and teams huddled in war rooms, working to provide a coherent response under maximum pressure. In Crisis Talks, I aim to capture the insights of people who have responded to a crisis and their stories of leadership, courage and resilience in the face of extreme adversity. Their lessons will help us all be better prepared to preempt and respond proactively and with confidence. My name is Grant Chisnell and this is Crisis Talks. If there's nothing more Australian than strangers coming together to help others in their time of crisis, then there is no one more Australian than Micah Flight Paramedic Darren Hodge. Micah Flight Paramedics are an elite few people, the top 1% of the ambulance service, and they are a different breed of responders. Darren has over 30 years experience in the Victorian Ambulance Service. He's written an amazing book called A Life on the Line, which is both a direct referral to the winching system is required to hang off to rescue people in extreme conditions, or the analogy for the work they do, putting their lives on the line to save ours every day. In this interview of Crisis Talks, Darren shares his insights into leadership and some of the team processes they apply when saving lives. We talk about motivation, fear, failure, success, and the chain of life. Enjoy. G'day ladies and gentlemen and welcome to Crisis Talks. Today I have the privilege of sitting across the table from Darren Hodge who is a microflight paramedic and is the author of an amazing book on his experiences entitled A Life on the Line. He has decades of experience in crisis situations with the Victorian Ambulance Service and today we're at their main hangar at Essendon Airport in one of their training rooms surrounded by mannequins conducting our interview for Crisis Talks. So Darren Hodge, welcome along today. Can you walk us through what is a MICA flight paramedic? Well, first of all, thank you, Grant, for having me. I, I love your show. It's, uh, it's a privilege to be here with you, so thank you. Um, so a MICA flight paramedic as a paramedic typically has been in the ambulance service for at least 10 years. So we have three layers. We have our advanced life support paramedic. That's a three-year course. Typically, after a couple of years, they can go on to be intensive care paramedics, and that's another two years of training. And then about the typically about the nine or 10-year mark, people can apply for uh, MICA flight paramedics and do that training so it's about another year of training so most of our staff that we work with are 10 or 11 year minimum mm-hmm. up to 30 years um, and we represent one percent of the workforce in ambulance victoria so there's only 45 of us and there's four and a half thousand paramedics unbelievable yeah so six years essentially in training let alone the experience or otherwise that you've had out there in the workforce yeah, as yeah well. i think that's, that would be a minimum so there's with every adjunct of being a paramedic, there's ongoing training, and certainly uh, working at this level at the microflight, there is we are constantly training, be it aviation related or clinically. So it's yeah, it's it, I feel like I've been a student for 53 years basically. <laughs> and can you explain to the audience what a mica paramedic is and the difference between a mica paramedic and, um, and let's say a normal paramedic yep. or otherwise? So we just basically have. Uh, skill set set extensions on top of a a normal paramedic so the intensive care paramedics some of the high acuity skills are placing people into induced coma um, a range of drugs we we obviously have those things but we have a greater range of of guidelines so Mm -hmm. we can we place children into induced coma Uh, we do surgical procedures such as finger thoracostomy where we we make an incision into people's chest and and reinflate a collapsed lung we do ultrasounds, uh, we do blood gas analysis, and then there is the aviation side, so we're obviously involved in some of the technical winch rescues that go on around the state of Victoria. And as I understand it, you're afraid of heights. I am afraid of heights. <laughs> it's a crazy thing, understanding phobias, truly. I, I, 
we fly through the city at the same height of the cranes and I look at the people in those cranes and I get sweaty palms. Yeah. But yet I'm happy to open the door of the helicopter out and, and go out at, uh, I think the, the highest operational winch I've done is 227 feet. Mm-hmm. That's about a 20 storey building. So I'm happy to do that. But, <laughs> so it makes no sense to me. So that explains some of the technical requirements of the role and your role does require some of the most extreme and extensive training as you've mentioned there and also some pretty extreme circumstances that you've been involved in. What are the range of responses that, that the micro-flight paramedics are uh, tending to be called out for? Well, we sort of have three genres of work. So we have our primary work, so that would be typically going to car accidents or people have perhaps had a heart attack or a stroke. So that's us responding to a community. Um, then that represents about 50% of our work. Mm-hmm. Probably around 45% of our work is bringing people from one hospital to another. So typically it is a small rural hospital into a tertiary hospital in Melbourne. Mm -hmm. And then about 5% of our work is the rescue. So it's the winching the people out of Bass Strait or off Mount Buller, um, you know, searching for a beacon um, and and those type of things. Oh, the personal locator beacons for people, yeah, in stress. Okay, understood. And they're coordinated through the... um, AMSA. AMSA as well. So we we have, obviously, we're... uh, registered provider for AMSA mm-hmm. so typically if there's a boat out in Bass Strait that's in distress they set up their EPIRB uh, AMSA will call us um, they typically will send their Challenger jet to fly above us and we will go out and perform the winter rescue. Phenomenal. What that explains some of the technical components of the role but being in that top percentile of a very small percentage of our population uh, what I think myself and others that are listening would like to understand is what really drives someone like you to do this type of work? Um, look, I've, I've, I've had a fascination with uh, medicine in terms of the pre-hospital medicine and uh, I've always been striving to be the best paramedic that I could be. I think in terms of progressing um, is that the paramedics are a strange bunch of people. So they, they love responsibility, uh, they almost crave it. Um, so being involved at some of the pointy end, that high acuity work is what most of us crave. So mm. we, we, we love the responsibility, we love the challenge of it. Uh, and I think most of the people that we work with are incredibly driven. So they're very professional, they invest a lot of time and effort into study, training. Uh, they go beyond what's the normal expectation. So I think most of the people that I work with are very, very motivated people. Mm-hmm. Now what about yourself then? Um, I guess. I guess what drives me to do it is that I've I've had a love of ambulance. I've been doing it for 32 years. Uh, I still love doing it. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I I, I go to work and I don't wish bad things upon people, but when that phone rings, I'm I'm more than keen to go out and do it. So I love the challenge. I I think the interesting thing is that being a a first responder is some of the things that we love can in fact damage us in some ways. Mm. But um, I love that challenge. I love uh, I love the working in the environment within the helicopter. So we have a pilot and a crewman and a paramedic. So that that relationship I love. We work with the best pilots that money can buy. We work with the best crewmen in the business. And that relationship, I find it fascinating how it all works and evolves and through the different phases of a job, how the responsibilities uh, change and how we work together. I think, I think it's a great privilege to be a part of. Yeah, you wrote a, one of the chapters in the book was about the chain of life, which I thought was a great anecdote for the chain of command as well that you yeah. work with and how you bring together these teams. I think one of your comments in the book was that everything worked on that particular day, which I'm really keen to drill into a bit more, but everything worked from people that had come together that didn't even know each other. Yeah, I think that's one of the beautiful things about uh, this, this business is that most people join to become paramedics because they want to help people. And that when you are dealing with someone who's in a crisis, be it an accident or that, an illness, that, that people that don't know them are, you know, and, and there's, there's stories in that book where people have put their life on the line mm. to help someone they don't know. And I think that's, that's what's great about the Australian spirit and, um, you know, coming together to help someone. I, th- I think it's a, it's a privilege to be a, a part of it. Well, mate, we're, uh, we're certainly very uh, thankful for you and your team and the work that they're doing. So I think this might become a bit of a mutual appreciation society today, so I'm going to try to avoid that a bit too much as we go, mate. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, I'm, um, I, I certainly can, can honestly say myself when I've been reading the book and, and, spe- and I've got some other friends who are paramedics and one's a micro-paramedic as well who coaches our kids in basketball. Awesome. Um, 
yeah, you're a different breed and, and we're really proud of the fact that you're doing what you're doing for thank us. Thank you. So thank you. We are a different breed. <laughs> Not yeah. necessarily all, all for the good either. <laughs> now, look, you did talk, you did allude to a point there before that, that you're doing something that you love but that actually can have an impact on you. Yeah. Can you explain what that sort of impact looks like? I guess the motivation to write a book that was it was multifactorial but one of the things that's fallen out is there's been some discussion around mental health and mm. I think one of the sad things in my industry is that we have four times the suicide rate. Mm. Uh, we've just had a survey that's come out that's suggesting that 16% of our workforce has PTSD. Uh, that's troubling. Mm. Um, I think the very this very sad irony of our job is that you, 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 you go into it to help people and the process of helping people, you can become damaged. Mm. And you know, certainly a part of the, writing the book was part of uh, my management of my mental health. And I wish in terms of how I'd managed that historically, I wish I'd managed it a bit differently. But the process of keeping a journal and writing, uh, writing the book was in fact very cathartic and one mm. of the things that, that sort of helped me out of a, a, a troubling time. And did you start the journal with, with that intent or was it journaling something you've always done? No. So in 2005, my wife and I went to Bali to get married and we found ourselves in the middle of the second Bali bombing. Mm. And as a result of that, we, we, we presented ourselves to the hospital at Sengla in Denpasar with a view of seeing if we could assist. Uh, and we found ourselves uh, in the hospital. Uh, there was a communication issue. We were led through the hospital and uh, we were eventually taken into the morgue. And when we walked into the morgue, we, were, we, we immediately began to protest. We didn't want to be in that room. Uh, we were told to stand to the side and be quiet and a large throng of Indonesian media and officials came in and they conducted a press conference from the room. Mm. Uh, the room was lettered with uh, obviously dead people and uh, body parts and Indonesian authorities don't have the same respect for the dead as we would perhaps have here mm. and there's no restriction on media over there so everything was filmed. Uh, from there we ended up in the, uh, it's called the Australian Hospital, it was built by the Australian Government after the first Bali bombing and yeah. There we looked after a man by the name of Terry Fitzgerald who had been critically injured. Mm-hmm. Um, his son, uh, Brendan, had been killed in the blast and, mm-hmm. and Jessica, his daughter, was also injured. And my wife and I uh, looked after them both for, for about 18 hours, or, or no, 12 hours, I'm not sure, a, a long period of time until they were repatriated. And Terry survived and he contacted me after the bombing and, I, and he was writing a tribute book to his son, Brendan, who'd been killed. And he asked me to write my experience out and... Uh, I'd found that whole experience very cha- uh, traumatised. Mm. You know, I, I was very, uh, it was very troubling. And mm-hmm. the, the interesting thing of the process of writing that story out, that chapter for his book, it was incredibly cathartic. And I mm. almost felt like a weight had been lifted by, from my shoulders. Yeah. And it wasn't until a few years later I'd been working as a microflight paramedic, I was involved in a case that again was quite traumatic. And I decided to go back and write that story out again. And once again, I was... I was pleasantly surprised by how cathartic that was, the process. Mm. So then I began keeping a journal of the more sentinel events and even I, I even went back and started writing about some of the historical events that I'd, I'd been de- that I'd dealt with over the journey. And before I knew it, I had this collection of stories, yeah. which essentially is, is, is the basis of the book. So that's where it came from. So, you know, in terms of the mental health, uh, you know, story and how I, what I talk to people about, keeping a journal or writing a book is one of the things that's helped me and um, I encourage other people to do it. Now you, as part of your role, keep extensive case notes, don't you? Correct. And, and uh, speaking to my friend, he said that those case notes are often left um, after, a, uh, after a presentation at the hospital. The case notes are often left within the ambulance centre for anyone to observe? No. No, that's no, not correct? No, okay. so the, the notes are left... Uh, with the patient at the hospital. Okay, yeah. But what we do is that we have a, a way in which we need to obviously de-identify the information and then we can share it internally. So Understood. the, ca- the yeah. case sheets will stay at the, at the stations. Yeah. And I think most of us in terms of our professional development, certainly I go in after my four days off yeah. and I review all the case sheets that our crew have done over that four-day period. Yes. And you know, from that we can have discussion with our peers about why would you have done that, why wouldn't you have done this, and mm. that's, that creates that ongoing professional. It's just one of the tools in terms of uh, our professional growth and that reflection that we subscribe to. And so they're de-identified, but they're there as an opportunity for yep. everyone to review and learn from. Yep. Um, how do they, how do, is that part of the process that you all go through? I don't know whether all paramedics would do that, but certainly the people I work with mm. are, are very interested in, you know, 
interesting, challenging and difficult cases. So we have that. We also have an e-resource. One of our co- one of my colleagues has developed this thing that's online and we can put case studies in that. So we have that ability to share the information. And the interesting thing is when you look at that online resource, mm. those cases are put up generally by people who have done jobs that haven't gone well. Okay. So it's a bit of that uh, information share and, and discussion about some of the learning points they've got from some of this, these interesting jobs because some of you know there's a lot of ambulance work that is pretty structured but there are some incredibly extreme rare bizarre presentations of trauma and and, and illness that most of us would sit there and go well this, this here's a scenario and, you, and everyone would be shocked you know how, how on earth did this occur so yeah. that information share on that unusual case is, is is valuable two of the cases that did stand out for me in the book was the one uh, for Jordan, which yeah. uh, which brought me to tears when I was reading that on the plane, um, and I'd love to come back to that one in a sec. But the other one was the amputation case in yes. particular. Uh, can you walk us through the amputation case first? Yeah. So that the amputation case is the case that caused me to go and write the book. Yeah. So that's you know I refer to that as as you know I, I did a presentation at last night for some uh, some people and I t- I refer to that as the the moment the day my wheels fell off. Mm. Um, so it was a difficult case. But essentially, it's the story of a young man who's in a truck and he's uh, driving in sort of southeast of Melbourne, about 190 kilometres southeast of Melbourne, and he's he goes off the road and it's a 1970s old truck, and uh, hits he goes off an embankment and the truck goes down quite a steep hill, and then hits a, about an eight or nine foot round gum tree, mm-hmm. so he's trapped inside the truck, and I guess best to explain it, he's essentially straddled the tree. Mm-hmm. So one leg uh, disappears and goes beneath the floor of this truck mm-hmm. and the other leg is on the other side crushed between a, a door. And in fact, he was almost ejected from the truck and the only th- reason he wasn't ejected through the, the window was the fact that the tree was pinning him. Mm-hmm. So we went out to uh, perform the rescue on him, incredibly difficult logistically, uh, just the position of the truck. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had a number of teams spending a lot of time trying to, to remove that leg and hours and hours went by and we... We, we exhausted every everything we did failed. Uh, we had multiple teams working together. Uh, we had a number of close calls where we were working so close to our patient with all the cutting and shearing and spreading equipment that you know we're, there was literally millimeters between the patient. Um, but as I said, after many many hours, we just we had not made any progress. And there's a condition called uh, crush syndrome where, where you have a large part of your body that gets compressed for a long period of time and there's some toxins can build up in that in those limbs. Um, when they're released, they can kill you. Mm-hmm. So uh, we were becoming more and more concerned about that phenomena. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't know, I think about the four or five-hour mark, we had a surgeon brought out and um, and we continued to work, but we just could not get the left leg out. And yeah. So the decision was made to surgically amputate the patient's leg um, his leg had gone beneath the floor and we could see that the leg was bent in a very abnormal position. We could see it was discoloured. It was partially amputated, but we couldn't get it. And the surgeon was able to do the amputation at the level in which the partial amputation existed. So essentially, she just completed the, amputa- the, the amputation, if you, if you like. So, uh, But, you know, it's, it's a terrible case for many reasons. For me personally... Um, you know, there's some things that uh, didn't go well. We had some problems with some of the people at the scene, mm. um, and there was lots of challenges. And um, physically, were those sort of command and control issues? At absolutely. The scene, were they? Yeah, we, we, we had we had a emergency service worker who was uh, uh, difficult, mm-hmm. and he had some opinions about how the patient should be rescued. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and he basically wanted to have, to have two cranes come in and, and lift the, the the truck off the tree and put it back up on the road. Mm-hmm. And you know when we when you form a rescue plan, um, you, you sit down and, and you grab the experts, so the leaders of the, the various rescue groups, and you and you put multiple options and you explore them. And my point to this particular fellow was that if you can guarantee me that all all, all the things that we're doing in terms of the rescue cannot hurt the patient, mm. so the idea of winching the truck off the tree or craning it off, I don't think you can guarantee me that the process of doing that is not going to harm the patient, and that's. Rule 101 of ambulance, do no harm. Yeah. So uh, he, uh, he, he, d- he certainly didn't agree with our position. And, um, and as a result, he, you know, not only was he difficult during the case, mm. um, he went on to write a number of letters of complaint to many, many people. Mm. And he had his concerns and, and, and distress with what had happened. So 
yeah, that was part of the fallout of the case. What sort of cognitive load does that place on you when you're looking at the different options and you have to deal with the other components? So this is a, a sideline issue, really, that you have to deal with while at the same time trying yeah. to focus in on the, the task at hand. Yeah, so the cognitive burden is high, clearly, and you know, you've got some complex problems and you're, you're, you're trying to build a team. So from our point of view, one of the things that we do is we always go and try and build a team. And mm. I've never, ever had to have someone removed from the scene. And one of the mistakes I made was not having that that person removed. Mm. Um, and one of the issues is early on, I did speak to the commander of this fellow and said that, you know, we, we need you to basically uh, keep your, your man in check. And his position was that, you know, he doesn't listen to him either. Um, so some of the difficulties, I guess, are associated when you are working with professional uh, groups of people, but then you're also dealing with volunteer groups. Mm-hmm. And there's some complexity in that. So, um, again, um, you know, the cognitive burden was, was quite high. And, um, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm fascinated by managing cognitive burden. That's one of the things I, I'm, I'm interested in. And uh, I would like to go back and there'd be certain parts of that job I would change. Mm. What would they look like? Um, so there's many criticisms that came our way post the case and a lot of them were internal ones about how we communicated. Mm-hmm. Uh, we didn't go through the right channels when we asked for a surgeon. Their case are after me. Uh, we got, a, we got a, a surgeon came to the scene. She's probably one of the most respected surgeons in the land. How she got there is really academic to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but certainly uh, I, was, I was asking for some assistance to come from, from air ambulance and that didn't come and I probably should have been a bit clearer in communicating that. As a result, um, the fatigue that uh, two of us experienced was probably quite severe, and mm. um, I wouldn't have that, wouldn't go through that again. I think the other part is that when we when we train our staff, the microflight paramedic groups, and we talk about technical rescue and in the setting of, of a patient, when you're doing a winch recovery, you need to compartmentalise the technical rescue and the clinical management. And there are parts of particularly doing winch recovery, you. Clinical management has to come a very distant second. Okay. So, the, the winching is so dangerous, and there are we are well trained. We've got the best equipment, but there are variables that you can't control. So, to be focusing on a clinical uh, treatment or a decision whilst you should be doing a technical rescue, that's where the error comes from. Yeah. And you know we, we subscribe to the reason error model, mm-hmm. the holes in the cheese. If you are not to, 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 sorry, uh, focused on the task, yeah. that's a source of error. And in the context of this rescue, I became heavily involved in the technical rescue. Mm-hmm. Um, I have urban search and rescue training, so I was using the hydraulic tools with one of the firemen. We were working in such confines that we were working millimetres between the cutting equipment and the patient. Often the only distance was my hand between the patient's leg. Mm-hmm. Um, I did allocate the clinical management to intensive care paramedic, mm-hmm. but what I should have done is I should have had an, a microflight paramedic come to the scene because he has another layer of uh, care to that as well. So. The things that we, we should have done in that setting, we should have been doing more gut, blood gas analysis. They're, they're some of the things that I took away from it. Um, that's the, some of the technical components to that, uh, that rescue and the clinical components to the rescue. Uh, other, otherwise, what would you have done differently as well with, with the other burden that you had there around the scene? I would have shared it. Yeah. So um, we, one of the things that we did earlier is that um, I, I, we have a, a, you know, a process. We had a scene commander. He's the conduit for communication. Yep. I handed all my communication tools I had off to him. Mm-hmm. And, uh, he's a scene commander, one of your own... Yeah, handles. he's an intensive care paramedic. Understood, yeah. And a uh, very good one and a good scene commander. Yeah. But there was, there was some complexities about getting the surgeon to the scene and how that would look and who would come with that person yeah. um, that I didn't know about. And, and air ambulance were trying to call me on my personal mobile to discuss that. But I'd given clear instructions that the scene commander was the conduit of communication. Mm-hmm which I think is how it should be, but there was, a, there was probably a point in which I should have had some dialogue with Air Ambulance to discuss that, and mm. I would have made my point about getting another microflight paramedic as assistance. Yeah. With, um, with any of these types of incidents, now this was, correct me if I'm wrong here, one of the first, or the first case of an amputation, remote amputation case. In a, in a car accident, yes. In a car accident. So in those sort of circumstances, what's the normal sort of debriefing that would happen post those sort of events? Yeah, that's, this is difficult to discuss. Well, normally what I would expect to happen is there would be a multi-agency debrief, mm-hmm. given the complexity and the magnitude. Yeah. Um, 
there was one, but I think I was not invited to participate in that. And I suggest that is because the the person who the, the, the difficult um, person had written letters to the premier, the CEO of ambulance, um, and it was becoming, I guess, politically difficult. Mm. Uh, I was not involved in that. Um, there would be a clinical review. Yeah. Uh, clinical review did take place, but I didn't contribute to that, so okay. I, I don't understand actually how that happened. Mm. Um, and there were some internal reviews, and I did participate in some of those, but at a very minor level. In fact, I guess one of the things that I felt disappointed about about the whole thing was that I actually never had the opportunity to share my story with people in its entirety, and it's a complex story. Mm. And I think there's, you know, there's plenty of learning opportunities for people to learn from it, but uh, it becomes such that that wasn't an option. Um, you said that that in the book you said that that case really changed you it was obviously the motivation for you to to write the book um and you said that that key source of trauma for you was not the actual case itself Mm. um, which i found um i found really interesting because you know that's that in its own right for anyone that's not exposed to these sort of things on a daily basis is 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 both fascinating and um, and awful at the same time because we, we know that you're putting yourselves out there in these circumstances each day and, and how they don't affect you in that regard is, yeah. is, is, as I said, fascinating and awful at the same time. But, but you did say that the sense of abandonment you felt from the ambulance service was probably the key Look, I, I'm, impact. Yeah, I, I, I'm the person who doesn't bag the ambulance service at all. I, I feel privileged to work for them and they've treated me very well and I'd like to think in turn I've been a good employee. But... On this particular case, I, I think they managed it poorly, and mm. uh, that was interesting. So I didn't I didn't actually acutely understand that that was the source of trauma. And it wasn't until I got professional help that uh, they actually were able to identify it. I think the reality of being a paramedic, a lot of the treatments that we provide to people can cause pain. Mm. Uh, you know, surgical procedures, finger thoracostomy, putting needles in chests, and things like that are are painful. But to be, you know a key person in deciding to an amputated person's leg mm. is not something a paramedic would normally do. So no. that is difficult. The, the interesting thing in, in, in that particular case is that uh, when I went back and I spoke to my mentors and I spoke to the scene commander and I reviewed that, uh, I went back and I, it only bolstered my decision. I felt I feel co- confident and comfortable with what we did. Yeah. Um, and I think the sad thing is from my point of view, is that I'm happy for people to have a differing opinion, mm. but only when they're informed. And I, ha- I didn't get that opportunity to inform people. Yeah. Um, and as I said, yeah, the when I had the the wheels fell off moment and had that, uh, I assumed it was just because we were involved in something as nasty as an amputation. Yeah. But as as you said, it was not. It was because I I felt abandoned by, you know, I have a loyalty to the ambulance service, and I expected that loyalty in return, and it was absent, and it was difficult to accept. We we always talk about particularly with corporates and, and other organisations who go through a crisis event, how important it is for that debrief to occur for all people involved in the chain. We, we do an ambulance as well. <laughs> it, just, it just didn't happen on that occasion. Yeah, and I think this is a great example of the reason why you need to do it. Yeah, I think so. And, you know, all ambulance services are really busy in today's world, but mm. hot debriefing, it's, it's, it's critical. And, mm. you know, we have, uh, I think we... It's just my opinion, but we have we're employing a lot of younger people who don't necessarily have the same degree of resilience to people of my my era, and I think the potential for harming people psychologically is only increasing. Yeah. So about people understanding how to manage their mental health is really important, and, mm. and hot debriefing or debriefing I think is is critical. Yeah, and it's a great catch point for that follow-on process for the yeah. counselling and support anyway. Yeah, I think, so. well, it, it, it's an opportunity for yeah. you to identify people at risk, if nothing else. But I also think that, you know, if, if you have a... It has to be run, and, and you know this more than anyone, Grant, it has to be run in a particular manner. Mm. And uh, I think it's a great opportunity to, to, to be able to share information and, and have people learn and become better for it. And it's also establishing of, of relationships that can go on to be mentors. And I, some of the people that I mentor in this job are as a result of having a debrief. Yeah. Um, you know, you form a bond, you share some of your experiences. If you're talking about a case that hasn't gone well, um, some of the uh, young paramedics take this terribly. You know, they, they take it to heart. But then a senior person comes in and goes, well, if you think that's bad, let me share a mistake that I made with you. Mm. So that they have this opportunity to listen to a person that they may respect clinically talk about something a mistake that they've made and it actually makes them feel better about themselves 
So again, I think that uh, debriefing is, is, is critical. And we, we, you know, we, it's a challenge for us to make it happen sometimes, but it's, it's so important. Well, I think it's a realisation that you're not alone. Well, absolutely. And I, the interesting thing about the book is that, you know, I had great anxiety about writing it. And some of the feedback is that I've had so many of the people I work with go, I thought I was the only one who felt this way. Yeah. And, you know, sharing that, that those vulnerabilities. I, the book is always, I'm, I'm always happy to talk to people about my, my triumphs, but equally about my failures. And then that's why I loved the Bill Bestick talk about embracing failure. Mm. I think that there's more opportunity to discuss that. I think it's a really important thing for ambulance. But I think, you know, sharing that information, those experiences, just it's what we should be doing mm. more of. Yeah. And look, it's, it's been... Interestingly, it's been a, 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 one of those outcomes of this whole process of doing the podcast as well. As it's a great opportunity to share those stories for other people to learn from. So, Well, it's, I think in your podcast series, you have such diversity in the people that you've spoken to, yet so many of the skills, I listen to the different podcasts and I think that's, that's of interest to me. Mm. I love Bill Bestick's one. I love Cameron Schwab's discussion yeah. about the, you know, the left and right side of the brain, the creative yeah. versus the analytical. Yeah. Uh, I think it's all relative to my space. So and I, you know, I hope that what we're talking about today is transferable for, to people in other industries. Now, we speak about that creative side. How, how is the creative side explored in the work that you do? Well, I think as a general statement, um, most of the people that are attracted to medicine are analytical thinkers. Yeah. And I think that uh, interesting, you talk about cognitive burden, that when you have extreme cognitive burden or cognitive overload, you lose that ability to be analytical. But part of what we do and what I think we're relatively good at is that we, that we have such structure and such learnt behaviour that while we lose that ability to be analytical, we fall back to our, to our learnt behaviours. Mm-hmm. So we follow our systems and from... So it's the mnemonics that we use are the same as in first aid courses, D-R-A-B-C. Mm-hmm. And the, as you work your way through that mnemonic, your treatment priorities fall out of it. Mm-hmm. And then you have this unique environment where you have those multimodal skills. So then we have the concept of load shedding. So we want to exploit the people with their particular skill set. Okay. So when we get to a case in Utopia... It's not as always as easy, but when we go to a complex case, one of the things we're always trying to do is get people moving quickly. So by going through and exploiting the skill sets of the people there, so we want our advanced life support paramedics doing advanced life support skill set. Ideally, our intensive care paramedics arrive and only do skills in their intensive care paramedic skill set extension, and then we have our helicopter people arrive, and again, we only want them working in that scape. So we're increasing the efficiency of care and reducing scene time. Mm-hmm. And you know, some of the cases that, uh, that I'm in and we talk about how we manage that cognitive overload from a, from a clinical leader's point of view, we always say to people to always fall back to your algorithm. So yeah. if things are going wrong, the best thing that you can do is to go back and start again, D-R-A-B-C. Okay. And if people do that, they will not contribute into the patient harm. It's mm-hmm. when our, in terms of understanding where our failures come from, it's when people fail you to go fail to go back and work at that system and they get caught up in that web of cognitive overload where they have that task focus, loss of situational awareness. They start trying to do things which in the grand scheme of things are probably not that important and then have the demise. I think Martin Bromley's uh, video that people most people would be familiar with, it's called Just a Routine Operation. If you're interested in human factors, so Martin's wife, uh, Martin is an airline pilot. Yeah. His wife goes in to have a, a, a routine operation and they wheel her into the operating room and the anaesthetist can't put the breathing tube in. He suffers from cognitive overload. Mm-hmm. He reacts to that by just continuing to, to focus on putting the tube Trying in. To do it, yeah. He loses the situational awareness, so he doesn't realise that um, the oxygen levels in her, in her blood go to a dangerous low level. Mm-hmm. There is an, a very unhealthy authority gradient in the room. All the people there realise what's happening, but no one feels they can speak up. Uh, so they have no crew resource management model at all. And they all sit there and watch uh, her suffer a hypoxic head injury, which ultimately results in her dying. Mm. And Martin talks about the human factors involved in her death. And uh, if you're interested in human factors, listen to that podcast. It's incredibly uh, that video. It's incredibly powerful. Yeah. Well, Bill spoke uh, spoke really eloquently about the cognitive dissonance, and and also in some cases, I think he didn't mention the words, but a bit of the god complex that can exist within within that medical profession. And yep. Um, and particularly when you have the authority um, in there as well, that can have a massive influence over over others in the room. We hear about it. I remember from the, the, the Texas explosion, the BP refinery explosion, it was 
observed that a, a senior operator was uh, restarting a particular stack and, and people saw that he was doing the wrong thing but thought, oh, he knows what he's doing, he's the senior guy and just stood back and, and let it go. Well, in, in the 70s, there was, a, there was a dramatic increase in jet travel and as a result, there was a massive increase in the amount of accidents. And a NASA scientist went through and he, he looked at some of the black box data recordings. He listened to uh, survivor accounts. And they found that what happened was that there were people on the flight deck of that aeroplane knew that they were cr- going to crash and all died. But because of the unhealthy authority gradient, mm. they couldn't speak up. Yeah. And that's a terrible thing. So the concept of crew resource management was born. So it's incumbent upon anyone on the flight deck mm. to raise that concern. And we certainly people that work in health and have worked in health historically will tell you about those type of scenarios. So it's an incumbent upon us that we create an environment which people feel comfortable to have a buy-in and raise a concern. So the airlines, some of the airlines uh, use safe words such as uh, I think one of one of our airlines uses uh, stop, stop, stop. Yep. So if someone says that on the flight deck, the pilot in charge has to pick the aircraft up, take it back to safe flight, and they have to resolve the issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, we use the mnemonic called probe. Uh, sorry, uh, so pace, probe, um, alert, caution, and then emergency. Mm-hmm. And certainly, you know, there's been cases where I've been at where I've actually declared an emergency. Yeah, okay. Um, and so, but it's I, I, I know that I'm on... Even the, though you're in the back of the aircraft. Um, yeah, yep. so uh, uh, we, de- we declare an emergency in terms of patient management. Yeah. And, and, you know, then we, we have responsibility. So you have that information share, people understand what's happening, yep. and then we take the course of action. You know, I... I I think it's easy for me to say that uh, and talk about authority gradients being unhealthy, but mm. I am obviously on that one end of it, and I, I appreciate that it's very difficult for junior people to go to the intensive care paramedic, I think that you're doing this wrong, or perhaps we should do this. So there are ways in which you can engage to do that, and that's mm. where that patient mnemonic comes from. Um, load shedding. Now, load shedding, yeah. from my um, experience, has been with in the energy market and okay. how they load shed when they have a... Um, uh, an event which disrupts the the electricity network in some way, shape, or form. So yep. they, they shed that load across the board. What does load shedding mean in your context? Well, again, I've been very lucky to work with the pilots in aviation. So the concept of load shedding is born from the fact that in being a commercial pilot is 99.9% sheer and utter boredom with mm-hmm. 0.001% sheer and utter terror. Mm-hmm. And again, some of the research in the 70s particularly worked out that when a pilot was dealing with a crisis, they quickly became overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. And so they introduced this concept of load shedding where he would delegate tasks to people on the flight deck so he could manage the more complex part of it. Mm-hmm. I think in, in the concept is wonderful, particularly for what I do as a profession. So again, if I come back to what we spoke about before, the concept of load shedding is that I can go through and do my assessment, the priorities fall out of it, and then I allocate those tasks as, according to the skill set. Yeah. So I give all the ALS tasking to the ALS people, I give the intensive care people their jobs, and obviously I do the things within my skill set. And again, that increases the efficiency of care. You spoke about Dr. ABC, one of the well-known mnemonics. There was another term that you use, a few different terms that you use. There's one called a challenge response checklist. Yes. You spoke about that one. How does that one play out during a response? So we have a couple of checklists, but probably the one that we mainly talk about is risk is the one that we use for placing someone into an induced coma. Mm-hmm. So the process, you hear about it said, spoken about on the news, but essentially what happens is that we have a person who has a, a varying degree of consciousness and we introduce drugs that make them unconscious mm-hmm. so we can put a breathing tube in place. Yeah. But what people perhaps don't understand is that the process of doing that is you, we paralyse you so you don't breathe. Mm-hmm. So if that breathing tube does not go into the right place, you can die. So we have a challenge response checklist that makes sure that we go through and we're absolutely prepared for the emergency. So essentially the checklist helps us, it almost sets us up with the view that this is going to be a failure and you are going to know what the next steps are. So you start with failure in mind, there's no other assumptions, there's failure in mind, what do we now need to do? I know, I think that we start with, that we will do this process, we'll follow this flow chart. Yeah. when you know when you have that failure point it comes as no surprise yes we've had the information share we've discussed it with everyone everyone knows the brief um people know their unique actions when we go into the crisis mm-hmm. uh and so that cha- that challenge response checklist is gold and again it's another flow from the aviation industry and uh one of my colleagues i work with is the person who introduced that I-, I would probably extend it out a little bit more and it comes back to a point that we had is that one of the things that 
it's not on it that I'd like to see introduced to it is right at the final moment is the question is, does anyone have any concerns about moving forward? Mm-hmm. So it comes back to that concept of crew resource management. So if there's anyone within the group that's sitting there thinking we shouldn't be doing this, yeah. this is their opportunity for them to raise their concern. Speak now or forever. Yeah. And the other part of it is that does everyone understand the brief? Because often we have the deer in the headlight moments where we might be dealing with very junior staff. We give them uh, some, some direction about what we would like uh, done and then we say, do you understand the brief? And they nod and then we, we see that deer in the headlight moment and say, so, so what have I just asked? And they yeah. go, I don't know. We used to flip that. We say, do you, do you not understand? Okay. So they have to give a, a positive. Right. I, I like that. I might, I might use that. Because that's so if they nod and you say, you, yeah. you, so you don't understand and you clarify Clearly. again. I so. like that. I might incorporate that. <laughs> um, the chain of life was the, the uh, and the chain of strain was actually the chapter of the other uh, case, which, as I said before, brought me to tears uh, of young Jordan. Um, can you walk us through that one and, and, um, and that particular case and, and what started and how that all sort of worked through? So Jordan was uh, riding his motorbike on the family farm and um, we're not exactly sure what happened, but he, we think he was probably trying to ride up beside a vehicle and, and, and wave to someone. Uh, but unfortunately, um, the person in the vehicle didn't even see him and um, the first sign of a problem was a big bang. Mm-hmm. And he stopped and realised that uh, they'd collided. And we think Jordan's probably fallen underneath the wheels of a four-wheel drive. Mm-hmm. And in fact, we believe the wheels of the four-wheel drive drove across his chest. Yep. He was critically injured. He was in a, a place called uh, Yakindana, which is uh, about 400 kilometres north of Melbourne, long, long way away from help. Um, fortunately for Jordan, um, mum and dad got on the phone and they gave some keywords. So the people in the call-taking centre were alerted by some of those keywords. And they, the keyword was they said that his breathing is gurgling. Sounds like he's gurgling. Mm-hmm. And a very, very uh, switched-on call-taker alerted the ambulance person in the room. Yeah. He was again switched on and mm-hmm. uh, he activated a HEMS response uh, very early. Straight away. Straight okay. away. So Jordan was lucky. He was attended by uh, some exceptionally good paramedics and when they arrived they found his skin navy same color of our uniform and that was because of the lack of oxygen in his blood mm-hmm. uh so the, and these are on the ground paramedics that deployed so to intensive the care city. paramedics yep. yep and uh so jordan had a punctured lung and as i said before a punctured lung in isolation can kill you and i suspect that if they hadn't have deep put the big needle into his chest to let that air escape in the next five or ten minutes jordan would have died mm. so they saved his life in the in the, in the short term but despite their care, his condition continued to deteriorate. And so we, uh, we flew up there uh, on night vision goggles in the Victorian high country. I, I, I'm always amazed by our pilot group to think that we can be do- dodging and weaving mountains and all looking out on in, under the green uh, haze and land amongst trees. It's, these are really incredibly uh, talented people. I, well, as I said to you before, I don't tell our pilots that they're, de- they're talented because <laughs> they've already got big heads, most of them. Well, yeah, we know some of them. We do know some of them. <laughs> Hello, Masto. Um, Johnny Walker out there too. Yes. Another good one. Hello, so, John. Some um, rippers around. <laughs> but, um, no, they are exceptional. And yeah. to get it, just to get us there was, I think, you know, fantastic. And when we walked up to uh, the ambulance, um, I could hear that our monitor was alarming, as you would expect. And uh, I looked in the ambulance and saw this little boy who was so pale and, uh, you know, he was so unwell. And the paramedics were working to capacity to try and uh, stop uh, his decline, but everything was failing. He was, he was in deep trouble. Um, so we decided to place Jordan into induced coma, as I said before. And that's, without question, the most frightening thing we do, mm. and particularly when you do it to a child. Yeah. Uh, Mum and Dad were there. And What's additional challenges? Aside from the obvious ones with the with the child, it, 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 there's the emotive impact. So yeah. we've all got children. Yeah. Um, so and again, the problem in terms of the skill of that is it's actually a very rarely um, used skill. Mm-hmm. So um, most I think we do about sixty or seventy per year only within the microflight paramedic skill set. So there's forty five of us. So you're only doing one of them a year. So mm-hmm. it's it's quite a rare skill to enact. Yeah. And as I said before, the consequences of getting it wrong can be quite dire. So we, as we went to place Jordan into induced coma, um, we had such a series of challenges. Um, his heart rate dropped down to 17 at one point, um, which, was, which was a big fright. Um, the problem was that his lungs were so bruised on the inside that they, they were not exchanging oxygen anymore. And we, we were aware of this. 
Uh, and as we, we placed him in the induced coma, we put the breathing tube into place and then blood began to run out of it freely. I've never seen that before. And it's, it's a condition called pulmonary contusion, but essentially it is bruising on the inside of your alveoli, if you like. And uh, it, it was such that you know, obviously that impaired our ability to exchange the gas, but we, you know, we had such a great team of people there together and we all came together and we were able to resolve that. Um, we then performed the first finger thoracostomy on a child. That's the procedure of making an incision in the chest wall and sticking your finger into the chest wall, which lets out the buildup of air, or in Jordan's case, blood escape. Mm -hmm. The buildup of air or blood in the chest cavity squashes the lungs so they okay. don't ventilate. So yep. if you don't address it, they, they, can, they can die. So Jordan uh, was the first child to undergo that procedure. And one of the consequences of that, or the side effects, is that you can bleed to death mm -hmm. by doing it. And it's unfortunately just one of the things that can happen. Um, but it's the chicken or the egg theory. Mm. And, uh, you know, so we performed that procedure and about uh, 600 mils of blood came out under great force. In fact, it squirted all over the side of the ambulance and uh, it gave us a terrible fright. And um, again... Um, and in the context of 600 mils for a child? For a so for a 10-year-old child, that's a quarter of your blood. quarter straight away. Yeah. So um, in ambulance care, at the end of that job, we replaced all of Jordan's circulating volume, using the entire lot. So we had we carried blood on our helicopter. I showed you that before, and uh, in this particular case, if we did not have that blood on that helicopter, I am 100% certain that Jordan not, would not have survived. How long has it been since you've been carrying the blood? I think about eight or nine years. Eight or nine years, and only that time. It's amazing, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is. So it's. It's now become an industry standard across yeah. the world, but there's many challenges with blood. Blood is a very, very valuable and rare commodity, as we, as most people would know. So uh, there comes great responsibility on how you manage that so that we don't lose it. Yeah. So you did that uh, particular procedure and um, the blood then uh, left the body initially. Yep. What was the sort of fears at that point in time? Well, the fears were that he was just going to bleed to death. Mm -hmm. um, and... You know, as I said, there's compressible hemorrhage. So, you, can, you know, if someone's bleeding on a leak, you can compress it. But when it's inside, you can't compress it. Mm -hmm. And uh, Jordan had a lacerated lung, which is a common injury. And you don't know the level, a degree of that lung. So, um, but fortunately for us, that blood flow that rushed out at the start slowed. Okay. And, um, and we were able to collect some blood on the way in. But we were also putting it in the other end. Mm -hmm. So we carry the four units of the international donor type, the uh, negative... Uh, negative uh, blood, so mm -hmm. oresis negative is the international donor type. So, as I said, yeah, his entire circulating volume was replaced in ambulance care. I find it quite amazing to think, to be honest. Um, but and then you got the confluence of issues around then taking someone who's got a, 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 a collapsed lung, essentially those sort of injuries that he sustained, and putting him into um, into an aircraft yes. and take him up into. Into, you know, into elevation and so what sort of issues does that start to create? So the problem is that there is uh, as you take someone who has the potential to have gas trapped in any void of their body there's a, it's called Boyle's Law so gas will expand with altitude mm -hmm. um, and that again can prove potentially fatal for Jordan so mm -hmm. uh, we had a wonderful pilot working with on this particular day Andrew McColl he won't mind me mentioning his name but uh, I asked Andrew to keep that helicopter as low as possible so Again, um, we don't want to pump up the pilot's tyres too much, but he flew that helicopter by himself in the front. I had the crewman in the back with me uh, on night vision goggles, unaided, and uh, keeping it low. So it's, a, it's, a, it's a quite a crazy thing that you sit there and you look out the windows without the night vision goggles, mm. and it's total black. Mm. And all you can hear is um, him constantly doing his checklists, and he's trying to extract every speck of power out of that helicopter. And you feel the helicopter sway from side to side you know he's dodging mountains yeah um and it's it, I, again i love that relationship because we have, i have great trust in that man uh the equipment and the people um and it, it, there was strangely something reassuring to hear him verbalizing those checklists so there was a massive cognitive burden in the back of that helicopter both my crewman the crewman was administering the blood um, he was syringing it in uh, i was dealing with some pretty difficult ventilating uh, issues because um, his lungs were so traumatised, getting the oxygen to go in with the ventilator was difficult. But to hearing those constant little background, that white noise, mm. is actually quite reassuring. So, mm. yeah, no, he did an amazing job on that mm. night, as did the crewman, you know, he squirting the blood in. And it, it, it's, again, as I said to you earlier, I think that's what I love about my job is that 
uh, you know, the ability to work in those teams um, with, in that particular job, every single person there was challenged and pushed to the absolute limit. And one breakdown of one of those people not to do their job well or do it properly or not be able to do it for whatever reason would have proved fatal to Jordan. And to see him now, he's completely recovered. Mm-hmm. He has two scars on either side of his chest from the finger thoracostomies. He tells people that he's been stabbed with a spear or a sword. Um, <laughs> that's his story of where the scars come from. And he, if you imagine when people are thinking about Jordan, if you imagine Ginger Meg, so he's got red hair with big freckles and this really big smile that you know yeah. there's some a bit of a naughty boy yes. in there somewhere he's mischievous you know like a wonderful kid he's got this little smirk and uh, he's a ripper and he's both his whole family they're just terrific great people i thought um the the name of that chapter was was brilliant both reflecting on the chain uh, you know the chain of life that you talk about but then also the chain of command or the anecdote yeah. around that links in the chain that led to that successful outcome um, you said a lot came together across the various teams that were involved in that response. Um, interestingly, you didn't know any of them until that point, or you, knew, you might have known a few maybe. I'd, I'd met one there. of my Paul Bellman. I'd met him uh, briefly. I, but the interesting thing is I'd, I'd worked with him. He was exceptionally good. Yeah. And we had a... a Where was he? Was he the he, first on the He was one of the first intensive care paramedics. Okay. And there was another intensive care paramedic who was being trained by Paul. Tedwood yeah. McManny is her name. Yeah. And... I, what I remember very fondly about that night is there was, in, I had an incre- incredible cognitive burden, as you can imagine, as mm-hmm. we were going through it and working out the tasks. And Tegman was new, and despite the magnitude of the job and what we were proposing, and what she didn't necessarily understand some of the things I was asking her to do, mm-hmm. but she spoke with such calm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she, she paraphrased to make sure that she actually understood my instructions. Yeah. I asked her to take a blood sample so I could do a blood gas analysis to work out how much bleeding there had been and, and look at how bad the gas exchange was in, with Jordan's lungs. And she'd never done that before. And she was very clear. And again, mum and dad were there. And that's one of the things I find distressing was that um, we had to tell mum that she couldn't come. Mm-hmm. And she was of the opinion she was coming in the helicopter. And we would normally like to take a parent, but I needed to have the crewman in the back with me. Yeah. And... Uh, so that's, there's two reasons why we don't take a parent. There's mm-hmm. one is because the, the, the physical space is the crewman will be in the back helping with clinical management, but we also don't take a, a parent if we think there's, this case has the potential to go downhill. And yeah. I, I felt it was reasonably likely that uh, Jordan could not survive the flight. So, mm-hmm. uh, but telling mum that, I think when she thought she was coming, it caused her enormous distress. You also mentioned a point there where you had to speak to the father. Mm-hmm. I think it was about turning away at the case yes. when you did the... Um the finger thoracostomy. Yeah. Um, how would how that moment play out for you? Well, I think watching your child being placed in an induced coma is uh, it's a brutal and uh, terrible thing to see. So I, I'd spoken to Dad, and we would like to develop a relationship and have a rapport and explain things in detail to parents. But there simply wasn't the time, no. and the co- I didn't have the cognitive space to do that. Yeah. So I said to Dad, I suggest you walk away. And he said, he's my son, I'll stay and watch. And I, I respect that. Mm-hmm. So I said, okay, Dad, but it's, it's going to be, look, really, it's, it could be a bit brutal. Um, the fact that we had so many challenges with the blood coming out of the tube, the heart rate going from 160 to 17, mm-hmm. I mean, that's dramatic. Uh, he got to witness all that. But I think, you know, as I said, we had Paul and Tegwin there. There was no panic. Um, we were methodical in how we approached it. We had... We had we put together a really good team, a really efficient team, and I, I'm very proud of that case because of that, how we all worked well together. But he saw that, and it was it was would have been brutal, and I'm I'm sure that has caused him terrible trauma seeing that. Mm-hmm. And then I warned him about doing the finger thoracostomy, and I said I, I I could see on the ultrasound that there was blood in the chest, and I ex- I expected there to be a lot of blood. So I said to him, this is incredibly brutal, and I suggest you walk away and look. And he and this time he did, and I'm so pleased he did because. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you make an incision through the chest wall and you blunt dissect with shears and, and the force that's involved is high because the intercostal muscle is very, very strong. Mm-hmm. And then that blood squirted out and it literally flew across and went all over the, the, the wall of the ambulance. I mean, that would be just... I can't even imagine as a parent what that would have been like. Mm, and making a devil a mark on you. So at the other end, you've you've got them onto the helicopter, you've got them, uh, uh, Andrew McColl's flown you um, with great skill to the hospital, you still have to go and hand them off at mm-hmm. that point to 
to get the other care that they need at the other end. Yes. Um, what was received? What was uh, what received you at the other end there, and, and what happens from there normally? Well, we've we've got a very good relationship with the Royal Children's Hospital. So part of part of our role is that when we have these very very high acuity and this would be in the most extreme case mm-hmm. uh, so we we're very quick to make uh, comms with them and at the time to give blood to a child we needed the ho- permission from the hospital so mm-hmm. we are starting to share information with them from the beginning yeah um, and as we take off we are making contact so it's now night time so the registrars are in the hospital are calling their bosses in yeah so the consultants are coming in from home mm-hmm. uh, they're going to need a surgeon to go into the chest possibly um, you know, many people are being assembled and we, we continue to update them on the scenario and, and how things are evolving. So we arrive at the Royal Children's Hospital and we were met by one of the best, you know, group of teams of people that you could ever imagine, some of the most talented people in the Southern Hemisphere. And you could be met by a group of maybe 40 people, not uncommon. Um, and they are the absolute industry experts on, on child trauma. So um, the interesting thing about the handover process is that the moment of making the handover and then walking out the door, you couldn't describe it to people, but the, 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 the feeling of that pressure coming off is so incredible. And uh, you know you, you feel so relieved to get yeah. there. And particularly when you're sitting there at you know, various parts thinking this child's not gonna survive. I don't think this child's gonna survive and, and to do that. And so you, you know, there's some satisfaction in that. Mm. But then, there, you know, there's always... That's a your part in the chain. Yeah, yeah but there's also you walk away thinking, uh, I'm not sure, and then the consultant comes and says to you, oh, I don't know that this child will survive the next 24 hours. Mm. Um, so, But, you know, again, we have a great relationship. We have one of the trauma liaisons there, Helen Jowett. She's the most lovely Irish lady you'd ever meet. She's <laughs> so happy and bubbly. She shares the information with us, and, you know, a couple of days later I find out he survived. So, I, I, in fact, I didn't choose to find out whether he was going to survive because I didn't think he would. Yeah, okay. And so they, they do give that connection back yeah. to... It's a great, you know. it's such a powerful tool for us. Mm. Um, historically, we didn't have that. So the, the, the rules around privacy, have, in my mind, in some respects, got a little bit out of hand and mm. um, we can't just direct, we can't ring up the intensive care unit and say, Hi, I'm Darren from the helicopter, I'm just checking on Fred Smith because of privacy. But So we've now put a system in place which we can have people within the hospital feed it back. So that's Fantastic. A, a great tool. Yeah. Again, in terms of that debriefing, it closes the loop. And you said, though, that you didn't really want to know. No, because I, I thought he would die. Mm. That's, t- that's tough, mate. Yeah, it was tough. Um, when you did have to don the uniform and uh, go back in, that was the moment that you broke me. <laughs> yeah, well, I'd stop looking at me like that, Grant. I'm getting a bit, uh, a bit loose myself. No, um, uh, to walk in that room and... Uh, the, the kid that was in that bed sitting there it was not recognisable to me. Yeah. I didn't know who he was. Yeah. Um, he was not the same child that I saw. So um, amazing. Um, what did he say to you at that time? He was still really sick and mm-hmm. he had a bad night. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, he put on a, a lovely smile and, you know, it was almost like I smiled, I've had my photo taken, get out. But mum and dad were, were keen to have a bit of a chat. But, um, you know, I have had the opportunity to come and have him visit our base um, when he's completely recovered, and uh, that's when I got to see the real Jordan, that, that cheeky little smile and, um, and so on. So, uh, you know, it's interesting. You, you sit back in terms of job satisfaction, mm. and uh, I've got... Jordan made a beautiful card for me, and when I was in hospital, I said to Jordan, mum and dad, I said, how much do you think you'll get for the motorbike on eBay when you sell it? <laughs> and I didn't really appreciate that Jordan didn't appreciate my humour, <laughs> that when he came and visited our base, he'd made a little card where there's a photo of the helicopter taking off from their property mm-hmm. and uh, a photo of Jordan laying very injured on the ground. But on the back was Jordan on his new motorbike with his new protective gear. And, he, you know, I called people Tiger, which I probably shouldn't, but he, uh, he came out and says, oh, I made a card for you, Tiger, and he tipped it over and he slid it across to me and he said, oh, we won't be selling the motorbike either, Tiger. Um, so yeah, he, yeah, he's a ripper of a kid, and uh, and uh, I know mum, I still speak to mum and dad occasionally, and he still rides the motorbike, much to my dismay. But mm. that's life on the farm for a young boy, and uh, you, know, you know. But as I said, I've got that in my flight manual when I record all my hours. I look at that every day, and it uh, always makes me smile. Good on you, mate. Well, um, 
I mean, that's obviously the, the height of the uh, elation and satisfaction in the job you do. What does success look like for you when you're dealing with these such big highs and lows in general? What does success look like for you in life? Um, success for me in life, when I think about those things, is the photograph of Jordan. Mm. And I, there's more people. So there's uh, the story of Liam that's in the book as well. Liam's story is probably the most challenging job I've ever done oh, holistically. And... Uh, Again, I have a photo of Jordan in my flying manual and there's other, other photos. But they're the thing. When I feel challenged by the job, mm-hmm. they're the moments I reflect on. So, mm-hmm. And it took me a long time to work that out. Mm-hmm. You know, that it's very easy to be... In terms of self-reflection, you know, one of the things that Bill's talked about is that the greatest uh, learning comes from failure. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and failure without learning is actually just simply failure. So yeah. I think people in our industry just tend to focus on the negative or what the learning points are. Mm. And again, it took me a long time to realise that you can't do that because yeah. it's actually quite, it can be quite damaging to you. So now when I go through and I do the self-reflection, mm. I do I acknowledge the things we've done well yeah. as well as the things where we the have the learning to, yeah. opportunity. So, um, you know, it's interesting. I was flicking through that manual. You might want to cut this out, Grant, but I was flicking through my flight manual the other day. I must have had a particularly bad day because I opened up the page and it, the only no- the little post-it note said, don't be a dickhead. Yeah. So um, I'd obviously had a bad day that day, but, um, you know, I... Not counting that out, mate. <laughs> no, we're not counting that out. Uh, Master will like that. So uh, he will agree with you, uh, agree with me on that. But, you know, it's interesting that how... It did take me a long time to work that out. And mm. you know, in terms of managing the mental health, that's one of the things I talk to people about. Mm. I, I, I subscribe to self-reflection, but you have to acknowledge what you've done well because it can't be all about negative stuff. No, you're right. Because um, it, it will hurt you. It's not a bad, not a bad one. It's uh, the no dickhead rule is a, is a great, well-known rule from the Sydney Swans. Yes, it's definitely one of the rules I apply in life. Yeah, I like it. I like it. Uh, I've got to speak to a school on Monday, so I'm wondering whether I'm going to be able to say that word. But I'm going to get permission. Anyway. I think so. I think it's, you know, sometimes you just got to put it out there. You yeah, know? and then sometimes it's very, very appropriate, isn't it? Well, I mean, we all absolutely. Know. Yeah, no dickheads works very well. Um, well. Normally, with uh, with the interviews that I'm doing, Darren, you would have heard a few of the questions that I do ask some of the team. And you're in, you do a lot of training now and a lot of speaking as well. And yes. um, and I find the book has, has been amazing. So congratulations on that achievement yourself you. there too. Um, if you had a chance now to give that last piece of advice to someone who's either coming into the field or, or someone you're doing training with now, what would be the the piece of advice you'd give to them? I think that you know you need to work hard and, and you'll be rewarded in this job. If you want to sit back and coast, you can. But if you want to go on and, and do big things and, and move into places like HEMS or in your ambulance, you've got to really be dedicated. Um, but it, I think part of the mental health message that I have for people is to, is to understand your vulnerabilities and, um, and then have structured support in place that you can use it. And we, it's, 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 it's multimodal. It's no simple one thing. It doesn't, it's not one size fits all, but mm. people need to have that in place. And I've got three nieces in various uh, stages of getting jobs in ambulance, and I'll be speaking to them in detail, but I'll be speaking to their parents as well about the things that I think that will work with me and the things that I think that they should employ. And, uh, you know, I, I think this can be a wonderful career, but you must look after yourself. And the other reflective point I found within the book is then, you know, like you said before, that when that team comes together, what do you think enables something like that to happen? Well, as you said, I think it, I think it's, it often fascinates me about how we can have teams of people that have never met each other come together and form a team and form an effective team. Yeah. But that is simply comes down to structure and training. Mm. And, you know, you have good, good training and good structure and competent and capable people that we can come together and all work together. And I, I still I still find that fascinating to think, yeah. how does this happen? <laughs> um, and, you know, you go into hospitals, and so part of our work is into hospital retrieval, and that doesn't happen. So mm. building the team in hospital is, is, is a bit more difficult because even when you're dealing with the nurses mainly uh, and the doctors, a doctor is not necessarily a doctor as a doctor, whereas mm. the nurse, and again, you know, that... Their, their degree of experience, exposure and, and talent can be highly varied, whereas ours should be, you know, an AOS paramedic should be an AOS paramedic, etc. So, Is that because of the acuity of the situation for them versus what you're doing generally, or is it...? I, I just don't think that they would have the same degree of experiences mm-hmm. and 
they don't have the same qualifications and training. Yeah. Now, I've some of my notes there around how effective teams work is that common you know, common operating picture, a common understanding, yes. the same sort of SOPs yeah. exist. Well, everyone knows the structure yeah. and we should fit into it. Yeah, shared experience through training or, or real experience. And yeah. then the fundamental one, though, I think is that trust. Yeah. I think that trust is really built on on those those foundations of the common understanding and the common training. So, Well, I think the challenge is certainly in my industry is moving forward. So... We, as we still only have a relative, a very, very small percentage of, of high acuity work, and yet we have now 4,500 paramedics. Mm-hmm. So how do we uh, give our staff that experience? And again, I, I, I come back to Bill Bestick's uh, podcast where we must embrace failure, and we must embrace failure ideally through simulation. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's where we, we're in a training room full of mannequins, so yeah. it's a bit weird. Um, <laughs> but uh, that's... I mean, you're far better to be failing on a mannequin than you are on a real person. Yeah. So that's the challenges for the ambulance service moving forward. And the question I ask every um, every interviewee as part of the podcast, if you've had a chance to sit down and, and have a chat with someone who's been through a crisis or led through a crisis, who would that be? I just finished the book uh, uh, by uh, Peter Fitzsimmons on Charles Kingsford Smith. Oh, yeah fascinating book and I, lo- I love his reading I love the little side anecdotes that he puts in there that this man lived in a constant state of crisis be it in the air or on the ground and, and you know I'm, I'm clearly fascinated by aviation I think the term that we, we use is aerosexual um, <laughs> so I love aviation stories but uh, oh my goodness me you know he was just he was just one frying pan into another so he'd be my person a pioneer indeed a true pioneer wasn't Absolutely. he so uh, look, Darren, it's been a real privilege today. So thank you for hosting me out here um, at the uh, Ambulance uh, Medical Centre here or the Aviation Centre for the Ambulance Service here in Victoria, Essendon Fields. Um, if you have a chance, please get on to Darren's book. It's called A Life on the Line uh, by Darren Hodge. Uh, Darren, thank you so much for your service. Thank you for putting yourself on the line for us every day. And thank Thanks you for all your colleagues who do the same every day. So we would uh, certainly enables all of us to sleep a lot better knowing that you're out there on our behalf. Very kind, Grant. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you and thanks for having me. Good on you, Darren. Cheers. Ladies and gents, that concludes episode 20 of Crisis Talks and that is going to be the last interview for 2019. I'll be doing a fireside debrief to wrap up the year. I'll be taking an opportunity to reflect on some of the common themes and some of the experiences from each of the interviewees, and in particular, some of the key lessons that we can take away and apply in our own daily lives or in our own work environments. It's been a phenomenal experience having the privilege to interview some of these amazing people, and I hope that's really come through in the interviews that you've had a chance to listen to. 2019's been an amazing year for me and for my business left at Boom. 2020 is gonna be an even bigger year for Crisis Talks. And I really look forward to sharing a lot more of these stories with my clients and also with other people out there who have the interest in understanding and learning from some of these extreme circumstances. So thank you for listening. I really welcome any feedback. So please leave a review on whichever app you're listening on or email me directly at grant at leftofboom.com.au. The one question I've got for all of you is who would you like me to interview next? Thank you for listening and take care.